Before I read the scripture this morning, please, please pray with me. Lord, we pray that we would be ready to receive your word this morning and that our hearts would be fertile soil in which you would plant it through the words of Matthew and the preaching of Nathan this morning. I'm going to read to you from Matthew 1, verses 12 to 16. Um, your bulletin has a longer passage, and when I was told we were only reading part of it, I was hoping for the part that I could pronounce. Um, I, was, I was disappointed, so here we go. So starting in verse 12 of Matthew 1. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Is it because it's, check, check, is it better? Okay, well, I figure this out. Hey, I want you to know, I'm walking around because I want you to notice my shoes that I have on. They're very Advent uh, efficient. I love these shoes very much. These are my, I call them my Ruby Reds. And I wore them because this week I was trying to spend some time with Matthew and look at this genealogy and, and try to decipher what what he was wanting to communicate and I kept thinking about the Wizard of Oz right do you remember the part in the Wizard of Oz towards the end when finally you know the tension is broken the munchkins have been freed and it's time to go home right and Glenda the good witch says Dor I'm Dorothy you can do it here's how you do it you tap your heels together with your ruby reds and you say what there's no place like home and she does it and what happens through the beauty of cinematography, she begins to transition away from the formerly oppressive land of the Munchkins to her home in Kansas, where she's safe and where she's secure and where she wakes up around the people that love her and around the people that she loves. Because, and it's a wonderful ending, why? Because there really is no place like home. And I thought about that more and more, and I've been thinking about it for a while, for obvious re reasons that I'll allude to later, but it really is true, isn't it? 
I mean, there is no place like home. I mean, home is not just this conceptual, idealistic aspect of our lives. Home is very vital. It's a very vital need that we have. Like, we need a place to belong. We need both a spatial place where we can call our own, and we need people inhabiting that space that also call us their own. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Which is also why it's an extreme tragedy when our home is lost. It's painful. It's frustrating. It's an experience I don't think that we were created actually to experience. There's a tremendous amount of pain, a tremendous amount of suffering when our home is lost, and it happens in myriads of ways. Right? For some, our home is lost long before we have the chance to even think about how bad we need a home. For others, it was our own choices. We made decisions and choices that wound up putting us in a situation where our home is gone. And we regret those decisions, but they can't be undone. For some of us, it's just natural causes, natural life transitions. The reality of living in a sinful, broken world has resulted in our home being lost. See, home is comprised both of space and also of people. So losing one or the other begins to distort and take away not just the idea, but our actual homes. And I don't think there's a time of year that reminds us of this more so than the holidays. Around the holidays, there is so much magic and excitement and just wonder, and it's so beautiful and it's so great. But there's also an ugly side to the holidays, isn't there? It's a painful reminder through every Hallmark movie that we watch, through every gift that we open, from every family traditional dish that we eat. There's always in the back of our mind this reminder that there's an absence of something. Either an absence of space that we once enjoyed or an absence of person in whom we deeply enjoyed. And it hurts. And it's painful. And it ought to be because we're not made to experience that. We're not made to experience the feeling of homesickness, but yet it's an ever-present reality. And the holidays do us no favor in reminding us of this. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Matthew is gonna give us an incredible bit of hope. An incredible bit of hope for our present situation as living, as he's gonna talk about, in exile away from the home that we desire most. Hope in the midst of our exile, in the midst of our homesickness. A hope that's lasting and enduring. A hope that is real and tangible. A hope that, is, that brings us the security and the safety that we're longing for and that we're desperately looking for. So here's what I want us to think about this morning. Here's the one question I wanna answer. Or actually, we're going to let Matthew answer in a springboardy kind of way, because it's a genealogy, okay? But Matthew's going to answer this question for us. Is there hope in our homesickness? Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful that you are in control and that we are not. Father, we are humans, and we are frail, and we live in a frail world where things happen that are outside of our control and because of the wrongdoings of ourself and others. And Father, these things hurt and they're painful. 
But Lord, even through the darkness, they are incredible, brilliant reminders that we do not belong here, that something has gone wrong. And while you, while you could have just shut us off, you could have said, you've gone your own way, have at it. But instead, Lord, you have intervened, and you have intervened in the most miraculous and beautiful of ways. Father, would that hope encourage us this morning and tomorrow and the next day? Lord, might we embrace all that the holidays have to offer, those of joy and celebration and also of pain. Lord, would Jesus be more beautiful to us than he's ever been before? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's start here. Homesickness is a reality of every human story. Every human story deals with some aspect of homesickness. Matthew's genealogy, if we break it down, which has been broken down thus far, I'm just going to use a little bit different language. He begins for starting off with Abraham, or the promises that God makes to his people, then shifts to David, where the promises will be established through the king. And then lastly, which we'll deal with today by way of springboarding, is he deals with a very significant event in the life of Israel, which is the exile. The exile is the place of restoration where God is going to bring the people back into the promises in which he has given them. And you can see in verse 12, this is where he sets up the, the last little bit of the genealogy. And after the deportation to Babylon, a.k.a. after the significant event of exile. Well, what in the world is exile? In theological terms, exile is simply this. It's the experience of pain and suffering that results from the knowledge that there is a home where one belongs, yet for the present, one is unable to return there. And the Bible talks about exile, this theological idea, really in two significant ways. The first is that exile is a human experience. Regardless of nationality, all humanity experiences a form of exile. And it also talks about it in specifics as a historical event that happens in the nation, uh, to the people of Israel. So let's, talk, let's unpack it that way, and I think it will, get, it will help us see this hope that Matthew is wanting us to take away this morning. First, exile is an experience. It's a human experience. So the question is, well, when does it occur? When does it start? Where's the genesis of it, no pun intended? The first humans that exist are the, are the result, are, they are the reason why this experience comes to all of us. Because when they rebel against God, they're exiled from paradise. They're cast out to exist and inhabit a land that was not intended away from the land that was intended for them to dwell. Their sin disqualifies them from being in the presence of God in the spatial place in which he created for them to flourish and to, and to dwell. They're forced to live outside of that paradise. And the rest of human history, even to present day, is humanity groping in the dark, trying to claw our way back into that original paradise. In other words, humans are always searching for a place where we can fully belong, both in spatial capacity and also around other human beings in a relational capacity. We're always, always searching for that place where we can fully belong, where we can be fully known, where we can fully know other people. It's as if like we have this distinct memory of that being a part of our history and we desperately want it back. And we do this in a myriad of ways. But what, what inevitably ends up happening is that we have this moment where we realize 
there is a home I belong to, and I just can't seem to get there. There's almost as if there's this awareness that we really do, that this reality of exile really is true. And it's triggered in different ways. I think the Bible does a wonderful job of showing us real people in real time, in real space, who have this awareness that, wait a second, I'm a stranger in a land that is not my own. The first one is really Abraham. I mean, maybe not the first one, but a great one is Abraham. And what's so interesting about Abraham is that what triggers for Abraham the reality that he's a stranger living in in a land that he doesn't belong, desperately wanting to belong to a secure and safe home, is death. When his spouse dies, he has an awareness in Genesis 23 where he says, even though he's in the location God has led him, he's living in a great land, he says, I am a stranger and a foreigner, and I do not belong here. And it's the death of Sarah that triggers this. Now, death brings an awareness of life, of reality, of, of humanity that I don't think any other experience does or can. Like there's nothing that reminds us of our temporalness, both in dwellings and in, human, in existence other than death. It has a way of exposing how deeply finite we are in a myriad of ways. The loss of a spouse, a parent, a grandmother, a family member, a friend, a child, has the ability to suck all of the warmth from every room in which we once felt safe and secure in our lives. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. The absence of someone that we have held dear has the emotional, physical, and spiritual power to make us feel lifeless. And it's in the truest sense of the word, the most damning experience a human can face. And it's an absolute distortion and losing of our home. Abraham experiences this and his conclusion is, I don't belong here. All of his safety and security is sucked away from him. But there's others who also have this awareness that they're living in exile and Moses is a really great one. And I like Moses for this reason in particular. It's not necessarily death that triggers his, Moses' awareness that he's in exile. It's really his luxuries. Remember, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. He has material good upon material good. But when he is removed from that, he reflects back on his upbringing, and his conclusion is, that was never my home. And in fact, the place he's currently having this revelation in, if you will, is not his home either. He's saying, I don't have a home, paraphrasing. But he's, he's saying, I, don't, I, don't, I belong somewhere that I cannot get to. And I think Moses is fascinating for Americans in particular, because again, it's through his luxuries that he comes to this conclusion. See, things that we acquire, listen, I, I know, I know, I know, I'm preaching to the choir. Things can never make you happy. We cognitively know that, okay? We do not practice that. <laughs> In, lar- in a large sense, is that fair to say? Like, we, we, we believe that kind of, I mean, we do-ish, but then we don't, right? In habit and form and practice, we really think 
when I get that Amazon box and I, and I open it up, my life will be complete. We really do think that way. Or at least I do. I'll put myself on the chopping block. There's nothing. What's more exciting than, that, than getting that cardboard box with a smile on it? Like, there's nothing, there's nothing more exciting than that. Right? That is life. One of my favorite authors, thinkers in general, David Brooks, who was an editor for the New York Times for a long time, incredible thinker, asked this simple but yet very profound question. He says, why are Americans so materialistic? Right? Simple question, very profound implications. And at first his conclusion was, well, maybe we're just, they're just greedy. Like they have the means to be, they have the means to be materialistic. They have the opportunity. Ergo, they just do it. But then he comes to another conclusion in a book that he wrote called On Paradise Drive, which I would highly recommend, where he says, no, 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 that's too simplistic. It's not that Americans are greedy. It's that Americans in particular, Westerners, Americans specifically, are very future-oriented. Now watch this, because it's very profound what he thought. He says this. He says, the reason why we're so obsessed with material things is not for the present enjoyment but for the vision of ourselves that we will make real in the future by having it now. By having that Amazon box, in other words, is securing a better existence for Nathan in the future. That's why I must have it now. It's not so much about the present, it's about securing a safe future for myself through the presence of material things. Very profound, I also think highly accurate. But we have to understand, this call it philosophy, is completely opposed to how the ancients thought of the world. I mean, let's use Solomon as an example. Solomon takes this to the extreme. Solomon buys everything you can buy on Amazon times 10. And what was his conclusion as he's standing in the middle of his living room with all of the smile boxes all over the place? What's his conclusion? Vanity of vanities. None of this matters. None of it. Now, if Solomon, the king, can enjoy all of the materialistic pleasures and then some to the umpt degree, and his conclusion is it doesn't make me more safe, it doesn't make me more secure, do we have a chance? This is why I think what C.S. Lewis said is, is incredibly profound. 99.9% of things he says are profound, but this is my favorite thing that he says. He says... The world has the ability to meet our desires. We have these desires. We have real desires like to eat and to drink. And guess what? The world provides for those things. It gives us water. It gives us things to eat. But then he says there are some desires that we have that the world can't provide for, that it won't provide for, like the desire to live forever, like the desire to never watch a family member not exist. And his conclusion is this, ergo, we must be made for another world that can fulfill those desires. Or in the context of our discussion this morning, there is a home that we do belong to, that we can have access to, that does meet all of our needs, that can never be taken away, that does provide safety and security, where we can belong, where we can be known and be known by others and know others. That's what our heart longs for. And Lewis says it has to exist. We all experience exile as human beings that have descended from the first human beings that have been cast out. But there's also not just the 
experience of exile, there's also the historical event that Israel experiences in time and space, which, which Matthew, again, is referring to as early as verse 12. So that's the second way the Bible talks about exile is Israel's experience of it. Now, before, before we go on, before we dig into the, the, the exile, literal exile of Israel, I just want to point out and also be sensitive to the fact that Israel is not the only nation or people to ever experience literal exile. I know we know that. I'm just putting us all on the same page. I'm going to focus within the scope of this on Israel. But at the same time, I know there are many of us who have family and or our own experiences of being ripped away from our homelands, of not having a home to go back to, of having the experience of, of exile in a real historical event. And I want to be very, very sensitive to that. So while I'm talking about Israel, at the same time, I mean, even turning on the news today, like this is still a real issue, even in the present. So I'm not dismissing those things. This is what I'm trying to get at. I'm not dismissing those. I'm just concentrating on Israel. Is that fair? After they're expelled from the land, eventually God brings them back to a land of promise or the promised land. And what makes this land so wonderful is not necessarily that the grapes were as big as the people's heads or you know, that the cantaloupes were massive and stuff like that. Yeah, all of that is wonderful, but what made it great, what made it the promised land was that the presence of God himself was there. That's what made it so wonderful. And the Israelites were invited to stay there as long as they wanted. This was their land. Stay as long as you want, as long as what? You obey my covenant. But when you disobey the covenant, God says, you're going to be expelled again. Spoiler alert, they disobey the covenant. So what happens? From 722 BC to 586 BC, in three different ways, Israel is cast into the nations. Why? Because they chose not to obey God. They did the same thing that Adam and Eve did. They decide not to obey, and so he pushes them out. And then Israel has some massive effects. They're under other occupied lands. They're not able to govern themselves. And three things in particular occur. Two of them, we probably could just guess. The third one, super surprising. What three things occur to them in Exodus? One, they have an outpouring of grief. Read the book of Lamentations. Like that is one of the most excruciatingly painful reads because it's just emotionally reflecting on how they felt as their land is being taken away from them. The second thing is they feel isolated. Isolated from their heritage, from their source of worship, their systems of worship, from God himself. It's a very isolating experience. But then the third is incredibly surprising. The third way that they're affected and the third way that they act is with a tremendous amount of hope. And not just like hope, but also dreaming, envisioning of what their future is going to be like, which to me is crazy because God brings them in the land. He says, obey me. They don't obey him. They get kicked out. And then now they're hopeful in a land that, that, that they don't belong to. And the question is why? And the reason why is because prophets like Ezekiel were reminding them in captivity, God has already spoken about this occurring that you're gonna go into exile and then I'm gonna bring you back, not because you're great people, but because I'm a great God who keeps his promises. And I said, I'm going to give this to you. I said, I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to dwell among you in spite of your obedience or negligence. 
but based on the promises that I have given. And this gives them a tremendous amount of security in the midst of their homesickness. It gives them a tremendous amount of safety knowing that their future is secure, that their dwelling is real, that they will once again live in the presence of God where all things will be made right so that even in their exile, exilic situation, they're still able to have hope, trusting that their future was secure. One scholar, I think, put it like this. It's really helpful. He says that although they saw a world fir firmly in the grasp of Babylon, by faith they, they beheld a different ruler on the throne and believed their narrative would have a different conclusion because of his promises and his ability to fulfill his own word. In a real sense, the people are able to live courageously. Courageously, and they're, to, they're, they're able to be good stewards of the land around them because they trusted that God would eventually bring them all the way home one day. So what does it mean they were able to be courageous? Remember, as they're going into exile, Jeremiah tells them what God wants from them while they're in exile. You remember? And it's the strangest thing. Well, I guess it's strange. It's kind of strange to me. In verse 5 and 29, he says, build homes, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage. And then lastly, in verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray for it to the Lord, because if it prospers, you will prosper. Isn't that fascinating? That while they're in exile, their marching orders are to seek the prosperity of that city. You love that city like that city's never been loved before. And they're able to do it, how? Because their future is secure. Their city is secure. Their home is secure. And that hope breeds a strength and courage that they're able to then reciprocate that in a city that is not theirs, in a home that is not theirs. Isn't that fascinating? Tremendously fascinating. So it is a real situation. Homesickness is real. It's a part of our experience. But here's the last thing that Matthew tells us, that it's not the end of the human story. It's definitely a part of the human story, but it's not the end of the human story. I think as the genealogy begins to reflect, God does deliver his people from exile. But when he brings them out of exile under the Persian regime, it's not as great as it was before. One of the problems is that they don't have a king. They have some governors, they have some really great leaders, but they don't have an official Davidic heir who will usher in these promises to, from God to the people. And, the heir, and then there's silence for a very long time. But then Matthew tells us an unexpected couple with an unexpected baby is given a very unexpected name. Jesus Christ, son of David the one who would come and usher in the promises that God had given for the people and set up a safe and secure, lasting, spatial, relational place, home. For his people had arrived in an unlikely way. And then what's so crazy is that right after he's born, he's forced in to flee into Egypt from Herod. Why? Because he's going into exile. He's living the same experience that his people had always lived. But there was one massive exception with Jesus in that he never was in exile because of his own doing. He never sinned. He never broke God's law. Yet he's living the same experience as his own people. And even when he was tempted, 
He still never, ever rebelled against God's commands. Yet what's so absolutely crazy is at the end of his life, Jesus, the true heir of David, the king of Israel, he's taken and he's not exalted. He's not placed on a throne. He's taken, he's beaten, he's mocked, he's betrayed. He's hung on a cross until he breathes his last breath. He's alone. He's betrayed by most people that held him dear, including his own heavenly father. And his reason why, and the reason why he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, where are you? And he dies. And the question is, why in the world would even his heavenly father turn his back on him? And the reason is this, because on the cross, Jesus takes on the full sting of our exile and the punishment on behalf of his people. He takes on the most intense form of homesickness that has ever been contrived or experienced past, present, and future in the world. Why? So that he can take it to death forever. So that he can wipe the complete idea and experience of homesickness away from humanity forever. What hope is there in our own homes, in our homesickness? Here's the hope that Jesus is exiled, excuse me, that Jesus is exiled from the, on the cross. He gives us a home by doing so that can never be taken away. A secure, safe place. I mean, what, what, what does that mean? It means this, that the New Testament is clear that exile is both an experience and it's an event and it's a part of our story as people who believe in Christ. But at the same time, there's this glowing optimism that exists in the church because our future home is secure. The warmth and security of that future home can bleed back into our present lives. Because Jesus is alive and among us, we can experience safety and security of that future dwelling now in the present and more fully in the future. So where do we, where do we go from here? Unlike Glinda the Good Witch, who's a wonderful character, and it's so great when she tells Dorothy, right, close your eyes, tap your shoes, and, you know, and, then, and then you'll go home. You know, Jesus has a different story. He says, open your eyes. He says, look at me. He says, watch me as I climb up on the cross, as I stand in your place, as my red blood flows down on your behalf. He says, trust me, trust me, and I will bring you all the way home. The sufficiency of his merit, of his work on our behalf validates that one day our home will be safe and secure, and it will be in the midst of God's presence forever. And in the meantime, that truth can give us a sense of hope. I've been wrestling with this week, just being honest, I've been wrestling with, is that true? Like, does knowing I have a future home 
is, is that, does that really affect when I go to work tomorrow? Or when I get sad over the holidays because, you know, our family's, you know, in another world, right? Like, does, does that truth really matter? And I, I remember, I, I'll give you the, here's a short version of this. I remember the, the, the night uh, that Matt had called me and, and said that the, the team looking for a church planner was inviting us to come. I was, we were in Disney World, and I was literally standing outside the Haunted Mansion thing waiting for Lane to, to get off the, the ride. And, and I was so excited. I was so excited, and I immediately just started strategizing. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do this again. This, this will work. Oh, I need to call that person. This would be a great person to fundraise with. Anyway, so I'm just doing all the things. And then all of a sudden, my daughter gets off the ride. And I realized oh man, if we do this, um, like, we're taking, we're, we're taking them away from everything they know. And I thought, huh, I don't know if I'd like that. And so I knew, I knew, I knew moving up here because we did feel like God wanted us to do this and we do feel like we're being obedient but it still hurts. It's awful sometimes. Most of the time it's not. Maybe awful is maybe not a good word. It, it, it's wonderful. But it's also hard. And so when I say to you, this is real, that having a future home that we can count on, that is secure, does help the present homesickness. Like it's real. I knew when we moved here, I knew that I was going to have to have a robust view, theology of home. I just knew it. And I, w- I wish I could tell you that's, you know, like now I'm perfect because, because I have, have a good theology of home, but that's not how it works. But I will say this. This really is true. There is a safety and a security in seeing what Jesus has accomplished for us and knowing that one day, He's taking us to a place where there is no more sorrow, where there is no more pain. And ultimately, that's where our hearts long to be. And it is ours in Jesus. And the more I find myself believing that, the more I'm able to take a step and say, okay, Jesus has done this for me. How can I promote the prosperity of the city where I am? That's our job. That's our joy. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your son. We're grateful for the way in which you have not forgotten us. Father, that you have prepared a place for us. And Lord, the knowledge of that and the hope that we have from that does spill back over into our current existence. Lord, the holidays are wonderful and they're beautiful and they're magical. They're also painful. So, Father, would you give us a grace to love each other well in these holidays? Would the good times and the fun be good and fun, and would the challenging times be times also of hope? We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray.